This is the story of a boy who lost his family, his home, and his heritage. A boy who traveled hundreds of miles cold, starving, and afraid, but he never gave up his fight to be free. His name is Moniak, and our mission is to preserve his legacy. This is Creating Hope After Hate. It's about 1.45, Friday, October 4th, and all of us are on our way to CVG Airport. We're all going to meet before TSA security, and then we're going to fly to Chicago O'Hare, and then to London Heathrow, and then finally to Warsaw, Poland. I can't believe today's the day. In the middle of the school day, the 15 students chosen, as well as the adults Susan, Hagee, Jody, and Uram, and the film crew all met at the CVG airport in Kentucky. Uh, from Cincinnati to Chicago, flight time will be short 56 minutes. Wheels up to wheels down. We'll be cruising at an altitude of approximately 22,000 feet. Thank you for choosing American Airlines. After Chicago, we flew overnight into London. We're in Heathrow Airport in jolly old England. And it is the busiest airport I've ever seen. Uh, We are waiting for um, our gate to Warsaw to be announced. We don't know what gate it's going to be yet. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Warsaw. The local time here is just approaching half past five. After an entire day of traveling on three different planes, we finally arrived at our introductory destination, Poland. Well, guys. Ooh, okay. You can hear me in the back, right? Welcome to Warsaw, Poland. And we have finally arrived. Took us a long time to get here. And I know some of us were kind of complaining about the trip. I was one of them, I know. (laughs) It it is kind of uh, perhaps a good thing that it wasn't an easy trip to get here. Because this isn't really about an easy trip. We're going to see many things in the next seven days that are not easy. We didn't come here for easy. We came here to make an impact. We came here to do something important, to put a project together that we hope will help us change the world in our own way, in our little limited way. We have a 15 minute walk to the restaurant, so dress warmly. It's a little brisk out there. How's it feel? Feels surreal, wild. Instantly, I was amazed at Warsaw's architecture. Beautiful historic buildings, different crosswalk signs. I instantly fell in love. I could feel the history of the city just by looking at the buildings, and I could feel the shift of culture from what I was used to. The place was magical and new, and I was so excited to be there. I'd been to Poland twice before, but I'd never been to Warsaw. I was immediately struck by how different Warsaw was from Krakow, which is where I'd visited before. Krakow escaped relatively free from damage during World War II, so the architecture of Krakow is much older than that of Warsaw. After the Warsaw Uprising of 1944, over 85% of the city was destroyed by the Nazis in retaliation for the uprising. So whereas the old town of Krakow still has medieval architecture, Warsaw has mostly post-World War II architecture. 
Yolanta, our guide, brought us to a traditional Polish restaurant. First was pierogi, a filled dumpling. Variants include sweet cheese, vegetable, fruit, and meat, such as the duck meat pierogi we had. Well, yeah, that was my first time having pierogi. What'd you think about it? I loved it. Isn't it good? You know, I didn't, I didn't think twice that it was filled with duck meat. <laughs> you know, I, I think that was the first time I've ever had duck of any kind. And definitely a pierogi. Um, I thought it was delicious. If you're a bacon fan, the, the chopped bacon on top, that, that really set it off, I thought. The bacon here is ten times better than American bacon. It's it was, thick. Yeah, it's very thick. It's thick and tasty, yeah. My favorite is... It's like, it's like dinner pierogi is uh, sauerkraut. Ooh, sauerkraut pierogi. Kapusta pierogi. Following that was duck, beets, and of course, vodka. Well, it was funny because um, I ordered the 303 vodka, but I must have held up the number three, like as a hand signal. So the waitress gave me three, and I was too shy to tell her that <laughs> that was wrong. Yeah. I so I just, I treated last night accidentally, and I, I, gave one to Madison because she enthusiastically took it. And, but then I was like, hey, you better be careful because this is like potato vodka. This is like the strongest this is vodka you will ever have. And it was the strongest vodka I've ever had. Uh, generally, I tend to stay away from vodka and having one of the strongest variants um, ever had definitely sealed the deal on no more vodka. It was so strong, it made my stomach churn. I nursed it big time because I was so scared that I was going to be sick. While Madison was nursing the vodka, one of the 15 students, Thomas, walked into the room. Once it got down to about less than half the glass and everyone was just telling me to just shoot it real quick, just do it, do it. Thomas had walked back into the room and had taken it from me and drank it just like a shot. And we all just kind of stared at him in amazement. And it was not a fond, fond memory for me as the first night. It's October 6th, about 7.45 in the morning, and it's time for some breakfast and then a little tour of Warsaw. My father's story does not really uh, come to Warsaw, and it has its own amazing history. This was the scene of a huge uprising, resistance, and Jody's going to talk, talk about that when we get to those locations. But there's a huge bit of Jewish history in this city as well. Our first stop was a park by our hotel that commemorated the famous Polish composer Frederick Chopin, who was born just outside of Warsaw. The statue is huge. Yeah, it's funny because I, I used to play Chopin as a kid. So seeing a statue commemorated of him is kind of... Blast from the past. It may have been the 170th anniversary of his death while we were abroad, but Warsaw still celebrates his music with summer concerts in the park and a giant museum all about the Polish composer. We hopped back on our bus and took a detour to the neighborhood where Roman Polanski filmed his famous World War II film. <laughs> The pianist about another Polish pianist and composer, Władysław Spielmann, was released in 2002. Surprisingly, the scenes in the film that took place in the Warsaw Ghetto did not take place in the ghetto itself. 
Polanski built a set wall and filmed those scenes about 15 minutes away from the actual historical site. It's interesting to me they chose to build their own set when the real deal was right next door. Our next stop was a marker of the Warsaw Ghetto Wall, passing the Palace of Culture and Science, a building built by the communist government and infamous to some locals. We arrived in a neighborhood. Maneuvering through some condos backyards, we came across a gray wall with stones and flowers laid on it. In front of this monument, Jody of the Holocaust and Humanity Center in Cincinnati shared some information to our group. The Warsaw Ghetto was the largest ghetto in, um, in Poland, next to Lodz and then Lvov. The ghetto was not so clear cut. It wasn't like a square. It wasn't, it was very, it was all over. And as we go through Warsaw today, if we get out and walk, look down, because every now and then you'll see a marker that will indicate where some of the wall was. Um, when we go to the Ghetto Uprising Monument, um, that is a, a main square, um, but this is what's considered one of the last pieces of the wall. It was the largest Jewish population only next to New York City. It was very vibrant cultural life, uh, a vibrant um, Jewish community, but it wasn't all concentrated in one area. And again, this is what caused some complications in creating the ghetto in Warsaw. Yolanta pointed out by the memorial that there was a small tree from Nagasaki, Japan, planted by the remainder of the wall. People from all over had come to pay respects to this marker of human atrocity. There were streetcars who went through, so people on the other side of the wall, so to speak, could see what was happening in the ghetto as they went by. I just kind of like placed my hand against the brick wall, and it was really cold, and it was just crazy to be able to touch it. It's one thing to read about it, but it's another thing to actually see it with your own eyes. I don't know, I was a little afraid to touch it. I just, I don't know. I just feel weird about it. Like, not in a bad way, just like that it was just too sacred for me to touch almost. But eventually, I decided to touch it. I'm nervous. That's a lot of history on this wall. <laughs> wow. It's almost like you can feel like the history with it. Like, I never thought I'd ever be here. Like, this is everything for me. Whew. All I can think about is in third grade when I first read a snippet of Anne Frank. I mean, she... wow. Just the separation from the outside world within that wall is like resonating. I think I'll never forget the feeling. I mean, to some people it's just brick, but like, I don't know, for us, I guess it means, like for a lot of different people, it means something more. Like I'll never forget that feeling. We were feet away from apartment complexes. We spoke with Thomas and another student, Jin, about how eerie it was to see people live so close to the wall. Do you think they ever think about that? Like, like it's right in their backyard? I feel, honestly, I feel like people probably don't. Like, they're probably just used so used to it. And like, 
I mean, I, like, I feel like it, once you live here for long enough, that's not something that you would think about every day. But There's history in every wall. Yeah. Count off. Count off. One. Two. Our next stop was the town area of the city. We got off our bus and strolled around munching on some snacks. Polish bread. Mm. Uh, as a history student, this place is awesome. So we're seeing all kind of history from Poland's past uh, up through World War II and beyond. We just saw the, the palace, or uh, uh, the place where the first meeting between Lech Walesa, or Wałęsa, and uh, the communist government happened in 1989 after the election of Solidarity, which was the first free trade union in the Soviet bloc countries. So for me, this place is absolutely amazing. There was a parade. tours in Spanish, Polish, and English, and street performers. It was amazing how many tour groups there were. We passed by so many. There were, some of them had flags to represent what country they were from. So there, I saw two uh, British flags. There were a couple of Polish tours because I could hear them speaking it, and I'm pretty sure I might have heard a Spanish tour at some yeah, point. I saw a Spain. Spain. I didn't see a tour, but I saw. I saw a Spain flag. And if you notice today, we saw different signs like street named after uh, Herbert Hoover. And also the Reagan statue. Yeah, there's the Reagan statue. Yeah, statue of Reagan, and uh, there was a statue of George Washington, and there was a monument to two American pilots who died during World War II. In a town square by the fountain, there was one street performer winding a beautiful music box and singing in Polish. While I could have stayed in this part of town for days, we had to keep moving. We eventually made it to the Warsaw Uprising Memorial. There were two distinct uprisings that both have memorials in Warsaw. One being the Jewish ghetto uprising in 1943, where the Jews retaliated when the ghetto was being liquidated. And the other was in 1944, when the Polish people held an uprising against the German army. So who took part in the Warsaw Uprising? Was it Poles or It was Jews? Poles. No, Warsaw Uprising was Poles, but they did have a few Jews who had survived the ghetto or had been on the other side who were a part of that resistance. But there is, you know, some thinking that if the two had come together early on, you know, again, it's hard to say whether you could have defeated the world's largest army. Um, <laughs> the German army at the time was, um, you know, very hard to defeat. The fact that the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising lasted for two weeks is, is a miracle in itself. The Jewish Ghetto Uprising lasted less than a month. The Warsaw Uprising lasted almost two months. While both uprisings were eventually extinguished, these were still historical moments of the people of Warsaw's resistance. Our next stop was a little further in town. It was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising Memorial. Both events have prominent statues. 
and the Ghetto Uprisings Memorial is in front of the Poland Museum in Warsaw. The memorial was designed by Nathan Rappaport. This monument was built in 47, um, so it's been here for a really long time. Um, if you notice it, it's in a very interesting sculptural style, sort of Rodin-like, if you know who Rodin is, and Michelangelo. And the person in the middle is Mordecai Analevich. Mordecai Analevich was a 24-year-old teacher who was one of the leaders of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, like I said, it wasn't something that they knew that they were going to win, but for Mordecai Analevich and the resistance fighters, it was more about choosing how to die. Um, it was, there was choiceless choices. You had no choice. Um, and the Nazis had made it very clear um, their goals and their intentions was to wipe out the Jews of Europe. So they felt that this was the one way that by fighting back, by dying on their own terms, that was one way of giving themselves um, their dignity back, that they got to choose when they would die and how would they die. And they decided to die with honor fighting in the ghetto. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. That is what Rappenport is trying to put forth, that here this small band of resistance fighters stood up to the Germans who were the Goliath. We turned around to face the museum's unique architecture. It was a modern looking rectangular structure with a dorsal fan-like hole in it. Jody explained the hole represented a fissure or a crack. You're talking about that time period um, of the war. That's the fissure, that's the crack, because there's over a thousand years of Jewish history in Poland. Poland was welcoming to Jews at one time. Um, in fact, if you look at the intricate design, the patterns on the building in the glass, they are a P for Poland in Latin and in um, Hebrew, which means land of rest. So Poland was considered a land, um, a land, a welcoming land to Jews. So Jews had a wonderful golden age, a wonderful existence in Poland. And then the crack is the years of the war. Warsaw it was a very important Jewish communal um, city. Uh, thriving theater, thriving culture. And so this is a symbol to the thousand years of Jewish history in Poland. It is a place to have dialogue. It is a place that is um, about, it's not, it's about the past, but it's also looking ahead to the future. Um, that's why it's designed in this way, um, because this place, when it was built, the idea was they wanted people to come together and learn about Jewish culture. As we were getting lunch inside the museum, Sean taught us some Polish to say to the employees. And they use it, they're very polite, you push, or push. Please, yeah. Russian. I can't roll my eyes. excuse me, or, but yeah. But like, if you want, you know, if, if you can't order, you know, you usually say like, Prosha pierogi, please pierogi, and they'll, they'll know that you want that. What is that? Thank you again. What was that? Thank you. spelled D-Z-I-E. K-U-J-E. Simple, right? The last stop before our road trip to the next town found us in a new part of the town. Sean, do you know where we're going? Yes, Umschlagplatz. Ah. This is the Umschlagplatz, which is German for gathering point. This is where the Jews of Warsaw were sent to wait, sometimes for extremely long periods of time, in the hot sun, in the rain, in the snow. Um, to um, be deported to Treblinka, where they were murdered. Um, a large majority of Jews from um, Warsaw were sent to Treblinka, where they were murdered. Um, so this is a memorial that was created to that 
front. Um, if you look up, you'll see that there are trees. What did you notice about the trees here? Broken. Burned out. They're broken again. So that's another, like we had talked about that, it's another symbol of the loss of Jewish life. And then again, what you'll notice, like this memorial looks a lot like the memorial we're going to see in Chestahova and other memorials. Again, it's about the fracturing of Jewish life of, of the before and the after. The other thing on the other side, there was a building also where people who were not in the ghetto could see what was happening. So, you know, this area was you know, seen by those who were not in the ghetto as well. People were left to wait here in the heat for trains to come. People from factories would come and pick out new workers. Those not selected for that were put on the trains, often to Treblinka, one of the killing centers. As we stood by the solemn-looking trees, we could not help but mourn for the people who were affected during Warsaw's dark period in history. While Warsaw did not have a part in Moniak's story, it was a vibrant introduction to Poland, history meeting modern day. I think one thing, just from like looking out the window, Poland is very green. I don't know what I was expecting with it. I mean, there's a lot of green space, which is really great. It's also pretty flat. It's a lot flatter yeah. than I thought it would be. That was one of the problems is with Polish history is Polish geography because it is basically a flat plain. There's mountains to the south, uh, and it's located between you know, two historic peoples that don't seem to get along very well, so the Germans and the Russians, so they're, in a, they're right in a bad position. But for those of us visiting Warsaw and Poland for the first time, it was eye-opening to learn of its heavy past. There were over 300,000 Jews who lived in Warsaw, and uh, the majority of them perished during World War II. Poland is a country that has often found itself in the middle of horrific wars throughout history. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, to bring up another controversial subject, the, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan, a lot of people don't realize it, but actually the damage done in Dresden is worse than what happened with those atomic bombs. Now, obviously, you know, that's, you know, thousands or thousands and thousands of tons of bombs as opposed to one bomb doing the damage, but still the, the overall effect was uh, Dresden was in many ways worse than either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. I can't believe they only had like 20 years of peace in between. That's crazy to think. And then like with communism that came in with the Russians. Like we always talk about countries like in America that like, oh, we occupied them for a little bit. And then Poland, like you don't ever hear about Poland being like occupied for so long. Like they only had like a short period of like self-identity mm -hmm. because of Russia and then because of like Germany when they became part of Prussia and Austria and everything like that. Yeah. So they don't have a lot of self-identity except within their culture. Mm -hmm. Poland's like really only known for like what happened in the war. Like no one really knows who they are, like knows much about them. I mean, it's crazy to think also more Polish Jews were killed than German Jews. Yeah. So we are, uh, we're on the bus. We are leaving Warsaw and we're on our way to Czestochowa. So what was, what was everyone's experience in Warsaw? You first, Sean. All right. Well, uh, I think this, this trip was important because it gives us a kind of a, a greater overview of all the events that were happening in Poland. It didn't just affect like a small town. 
where it like completely wiped out the Jewish population. It affected so many other big cities and like wiped out their um, populations too. I'm well. This was kind of our introduction to Polish culture and just like who the people are, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, they're pretty friendly from what I can tell and their language is really interesting to listen to. Uh, it's very difficult to understand um, and it's very difficult to pronounce but it's also a very beautiful language and I think it was good that we started with a town that isn't so connected with Monique's story and Hagit because it kind of showed us like Sean said how or and also you said how um, everyone was affected by this. But it was time to begin Moniak's story, the story we had come all this way to follow. The next step on our journey was his hometown, Chinstehova. Creating Hope After Hate is a podcast made by Carly Coulihan, Sean Liming, and Madison White. Podcast editing done by Carly Coulihan. Special thanks to Jonathan Kilberg for additional sound engineering and Ethan Qureshi for music composition. For more information on the project and how to get involved, Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Hope After Hate.